Hi, I'm Matt Pacilli with the Virginia State Golf Association, and welcome to our Golf in the Commonwealth podcast. This week, we're talking about the Golf Digest Hot List. As a VSGA member, you're receiving a complimentary subscription to the magazine, and by now have probably caught the January issue, which contained the annual hot list of new clubs and products. In flipping through that, you may have seen today's guest, Buddy Christensen. Buddy is the owner and president of Golfdom, a golf store in McLean, Virginia, which helps golfers live the game through a huge selection of products, gear, fittings, and more. Buddy has been a part of the Golf Digest Hot List panel for the past seven years, and in this interview shares his experience with the panel and his journey in golf. Before we begin, I do want to apologize for my audio quality in this interview. I'm not sure what happened. I was just sitting in my closet the way that I have for the past few interviews, but instead it sounds like I'm driving a golf cart through a car wash. Fortunately though, I don't talk very much in this interview. All right, here's my interview with Buddy Christensen. Buddy Christensen, thank you for taking the time to join us on Golf in the Commonwealth. For people who don't know you, who are you and what do you do? For the all kinds of people that wouldn't know who I am, um, they, I, I, I own a golf store called Golfdom in Tyson's uh, Corner of Virginia here. Um, and I've been involved with the store uh, since I was in high school. So it's, it's been a long time. So I've met a lot of people, uh, dealt with a lot of customers uh, through the many, many years here in our area. Um, but we are up in the the dc market and there's uh you know the the website is growing and and we're reaching out to more people in the virginia uh broader area of virginia as well so it's uh it's good to be with you guys and and talk a little bit today so you got involved with golfdom when you were in high school and i don't want to try to age you at all but you are now the owner and president of Dolphin. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. And uh, I mean, it's it's tough not to get aged when you go through some of these stories, right? Because there's always uh, benchmarks that would point out where you are. But I, I did start um, when I was uh, a junior in high school, worked my uh, summer and winter breaks while I went to James Madison University, and then began working uh, full time after after school and, and looked at some other opportunities along the way, but for the most part, um, you know, was, was very tied in with, with our organization and enjoyed some of the, the good times we had and, and was happy to take on some of the challenges. And all of a sudden, 30 years later, I'm uh, still doing the same thing. Wow. Tell me about your golf journey. Like, when you got involved, I think a lot of us could identify with summer jobs and jobs that you had in high school, and they might not have always been, we may not have always been as fortunate to have a job in an industry or in a, in a retail space even that we sort of identified with. And were you really into golf at the time that you got involved as a junior in high school? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> I, you know, my introduction to golf my my father was a golfer and really enjoyed the game um and my grandfather my mother's father uh had the same passion so i learned golf 
uh, and the golf uh, challenges and, and fell in love with it um, when I was uh, seven, six, seven, eight years old. And, and back then it was not as widely uh, played with, with younger kids. Um, and so I, I didn't have many friends growing up that played. I didn't grow up in a, a junior golf environment. And I'm talking, you know, before teenage years. Um, so it was a little bit un, uncharted, um, but I really did love the game. And then when I was in middle school and involved in other sports and, and kind of um, my, my father had hurt his back and stopped playing for, for a couple years. And so I kind of stopped playing myself because that was my conduit to, to playing golf um, was my father. And, and like I said, I didn't necessarily have friends that we would just go play golf together. So um, as I was getting into some other sports and just kind of moving along and, and really wasn't looking to play golf again, uh, necessarily. Um, but some of my soccer teammates, um, and I played with some older guys, um, that could drive. Um, and so after I was in, in eighth grade summer, that summer, we started playing golf again. I'm like, yeah, I play, I play golf. I've got set downstairs. I go get these golf clubs out and they're way too short for me. So I, realized I can use my dad's clubs, which I thought was really cool. So I started playing that summer, just, just a little bit around the area of the Fairfax County, uh, public courses and, and got back into golf and, and realized I really did love it. And I came home, uh, the first day of high school and, and told my dad, Hey, there's a golf team. I didn't realize there was a golf team and, and things weren't publicized the way they are nowadays. And, and he said, well, did you sign up? And I said, no, I just, I thought it was interesting. He said, get in the car, let's go sign you up. So I go sign up, play the next day for tryouts. And I think I, I shot 50, um, I think 50 on the dot, if I remember right. And uh, my, my, the golf coach, and, and then back then 50 wasn't like something to completely sneeze at. It wasn't as competitive as it is today. And my, my, potential coach said, um, where do you play? And I said, well, I, I just getting back into the game and I don't really, I don't have a home club. He said, what if I got you a job at, at Westwood country club, which was in my hometown of Vienna? Um, would you, would you take advantage and play more? And part of, part of the job then came with playing privileges. So I said, well, of course I would love that. So I started working there and, and playing and, and got more serious. Um, junior uh, freshman sophomore year get to my junior year and over the winters um i still wanted to make money um and my my dad said well you should work at you know the warehouse down the street the tyson washington golf center and uh so and he had known uh joe chang who was the owner uh through some mutual friends so he said i'll take you up there and, and we went up there and he introduced me and so I get hired and I was one of four or five people on the staff at the time um, and, you know, just enjoyed the retail side of the business um, from the start. It was it was a different angle on the on the sport or or from your, your view of the sport. But it was uh, always very, very interesting to me. And, and from there, um, you know, like I said, 30 years later, here we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where we're ultimately going to go in this conversation is your position now through your uh, time in the industry, but also 
the president as president and owner of Golfdom has landed you or earned you a spot on the Golf Digest hot list or the group that, that puts that together. And as you know, VSGA members receive a subscription to Golf Digest. I was going through mine and I was like, oh, the hot list. This is great. This is things to put on my my wish list. And I'm flipping through there and I saw your name and face and I had known of you. And so I wanted to have the opportunity to share a little bit about how you got involved with that. Um, And we'll get to that a little bit with our listeners. So then how do you come to the time when you own the store? Yeah, well, you know, like I said, this is uh, in the uh, mid '90s. I'm out of college, and and we had kicked around. Uh, so it's a family-owned operation. Um, the Chang family owned it. Uh, Joe Chang, it really was, and and became, and and kind of was from the start, a second father to me, and uh, you know, taught me the ropes of the business. And there's there's a lot. Um, to be learned behind the scenes, but, but a lot of it's, you know, simple treating people, right. Um, being a good partner with your vendors and understanding that, uh, you know, the, the levels of success come from these relationships. And so, you know, I really worked with him. Um, we kicked around opening some stores. There was actually, he was part owner of a store in Richmond called Richmond golf center. And I think he had one in Williamsburg, um, a few other operations completely run separately from us. So I never really uh, learned how they, they operated or, or anything along those lines. But, um, you know, we looked at taking a couple of people that worked with some of their stores and starting some stores in Charlotte, North Carolina. That was kind of the thought um, by the mid nineties. That's where I was going to go. And that fell through. Um, and while that fell through, uh, he, had purchased this plot of land where we are now. Um, so we moved from the warehouse in 1997. Ultimately we opened in the, in the building that we're in now. And, um, so that was a kind of a next tier to where we were. We came from this very warehousey, uh, setup, which was kind of in vogue. That's how you sold golf equipment. Then if you weren't on the golf course and set up in more of a Nordstrom style, uh, really nice uh, pro shop style looking store. And it was cutting edge at the time. There was a few others, maybe similar at the time, but, but it was the Chang family vision to, to set this up and, and sell more apparel um, and give a really nice shopping experience with, again, the backbone of all of this was, you know, treating your customers right and, and taking care of them. So the, the, the customer service side was the, of the utmost importance. Um, but then we had this package with this nice looking store, uh, working for us as well. So, so we evolved with that. We actually opened another store in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. So I dealt with two stores for a number of years. Um, eventually three years into that, a family member bought that from, from the Chang family, um, because they really just didn't want to be involved in Philadelphia anymore. So, we were, you know, back to the one store and, and all along through that time, um, I was doing more and more running the operation uh, for the Chang family and, and kind of, you know, in about 2009, um, one of uh, Joe's sons, Young, who was a good friend of mine, went to JMU as well, 
bought the operation from Joe, um, kind of as a passing along type of deal. Uh, Joe was still involved, but as a landlord, but, but it was Young's operation and I ran it soup to nuts for Young. Um, and again, we had a very, very good relationship. Um, and at one point he, he pulled me into the office one day and says, Hey, I know this is your passion. It's really not my passion. Let's work on a way where you could buy this building, this operation from us. Um, and I'll own the building and, and rent it out to you. And it, at first was like, well, that's, that's just crazy. I, I have no idea why we'd even think that because it's, it's impossible. And we, we got to talking and it took us about a year to kind of iron out all the details. Um, but really with this idea all along that we're, that's, that's our end goal. And I, I credit young for having the, uh, you know, the, the strength to, to want to go through with that and, and recognizing that he wanted to go off and do something else. And that, that, um, I was a person that could really run this operation and, and own it and, and keep it in business, um, as he's renting it out to me, which is important for a landlord to have someone that's actually paying rent and, and taking care of their business. So, um, 2014, we, we got it done. I, I bought the business. Um, and for about two and a half years, I had friends calling me apologizing for how bad it must be owning a golf store, uh, given the industry that we were in at the time. Um, and I, you know, I would tell them, look, it's, it's tough. It's, it's, uh, really tough, but it's the times that we're in. And when I bought it, I knew that these were the times that we were going to deal with. So, um, <clears throat> we, really started to see an uptick in 2017, 18, 19, really nice growth. 2020 is in its own bucket because it, it was just, you know, went from a really great start to a next to nothing, only online uh, period of, of a couple months to the craziest six months we've ever had in this, this industry. So, um, so anyway, that's kind of the, the walk through the whole, process there. But um, I do reflect a lot on, you know, what it was like in 14, 15, 16, when it was so tough in this industry, not just here, just in general, um, for the golf business. Uh, you know, it, it was a very tough time. And we, we now have more people playing. It's, it's a very exciting time. Um, but we, we can't lose sight of the fact of, of where we were and try to avoid getting back to that type of, of time frame again. Yeah, I think that, that for those of us in the industry, um, the golf industry, that is, you know, we have to, while 2020 brought with it challenges at the same time, growth of people getting out and playing golf, that maybe we're picking it up for the first time or picking the clubs back up again. We still need to stay assertive about ways to keep people engaged with the game uh, because they came back for one reason or another and we need to find ways to continue to show them the value that they get out of a golf experience yep. which ties in a little bit to sort of what you were talking about in customer service because customer service in golf can be difficult customer service in general is is difficult sort of trying to identify with the person where they are when they come through the door. But with golf, you have so many nuances in terms of somebody may come in and I want this type of shaft and this head and this is how I sort of 
I'm an expert on it, you're not. How? Tell me some about about some of the services that are offered at Golfdom and how you maintain um, solid customer service. Yeah, well, I mean, I think at at the end of the day, it's it's treating people in the right way, and that can mean a lot of different things. Um, and recognizing that um, there are nuances in, in all the situations. So yes, you, you, like you said, there, there, someone comes in, knows exactly what they want and, and they do. And, and the consumer in, as a whole, in not just golf, I think in probably just about any kind of shopping uh, situation is more in tune with, uh, they're more informed nowadays than ever before because of the ability availability of the internet to do the research and, and test. And sometimes that can be a dangerous thing, right? They might be uh, not understanding what they think they understand, and that can go down a, a different path. But but for the most part, people understand um, and, and really are informed on most everything that they're coming in to look for. Um, so that, that just takes away a little piece of what we had to offer before, but where we can take that is to apply how does that how is even though that's the information how is that really being utilized by our masses of of customers that are coming in and so sometimes you can sort through things so club fitting is a big part of what we do and 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 using trackman um technology um using trackman launch monitors really dials in those numbers so at the end of the day with with that type of of there's a, a bit of, um, uh, you know, an artist piece of the numbers, but at the end of the day, the numbers are the numbers, right? So we can show a customer, this really is, you know, pulling your spin down or adding to it or whatever we're trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, so that, that helps, um, to have someone who really understands how to get us to certain numbers, um, to optimize, you know, distance and accuracy and all the things that we're looking for um, is vital. Um, so the technology is great. The person to have uh, running it is is more vital, in my opinion. Um, and then communicating it to the consumer in a way that makes sense to them, which for some people might mean a lot of explaining and for others might be mean barely any explaining. Um, so again, back to your, your, your customer service, you know, as far as our, our sales staff goes, like every, every policy we try to set up um, is set up with the customer in mind. And you try to reflect on, at least I do in, in 30 plus years of experience of, okay, how does whatever we're talking about changing a policy, how does this uh, seem like it would react uh, in a consumer's mind and make sure that, you know, we're doing the best things we can for them. Does that mean that we can give away golf equipment all day? No, we couldn't, we can't afford to do that, but we can set up some policies that, um, you know, help their experience and, and make that experience something that, that they reflect very finely on and, and come back the next time. Um, and that's just, that's a constant battle that we're always, always working with. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that perspective because I think customer service in golf, whatever it is, whether it's being the, you know, a starter or a welcome person at a local golf course or in the golf industry on the retail side, whatever that is, is so important and critical to keeping people 
engaged with the game at whatever level that is that they're experiencing that. That's such a huge part of keeping them involved. Let's take a quick break, and then I want to come back and we'll talk a little bit about your experience with the Golf Digest hot list. So, buddy, like most VSGA members, as I got my Golf Digest uh, issue in the last month or so, it had the Golf Digest hot list, which is something I think at the beginning of the year probably a lot of golfers look forward to, to see what new equipment is coming out and is on the horizon. And as I was scrolling through there and flipping through there, I saw your name and face on the retailer side of an individual involved with the Golf Digest hot list. Number one, just tell us what is the Golf Digest hot list? Yeah, so the Golf Digest hot list is a, um, it's the brainchild, I believe, from the beginning of uh, Mike Statura and Mike Johnson, who are, are Golf Digest writers. Um, and they they basically brought together all the equipment that's, that's coming out um, and maybe back in the day, it was, you know, what's been out. Um, I don't, I don't remember exactly when it started from a year standpoint, but um, it, it's, it's to really rate all the equipment uh, in terms of playability for average players, better players, uh, in terms of other nuances that may, you know, the looks of the clubs and, and that sort of thing. And, and as a retailer, they have us come in. Um, really more to discuss the demand of the brands and to kind of validate um, what's going on in the industry as far as does the equipment match up with uh, the popularity of the equipment? Does that match up with where the the hitters, the the players that come in and and hit the balls all day long uh, to say, you know, they may say that company XYZ driver is great, but they come to us and none of our customers have even heard of this brand. That's going to be a uphill battle for that, even though the driver is great versus for another brand that's um, extremely popular. Um, that's getting, you know, good ratings, but maybe not the top is top ratings. It's getting, uh, it kind of fits in where, okay, that the demand on that brand is, is lower Um Therefore, it's not as apt to get the highest score. But but as retailers, I think we're five percent of the whole uh, scoring aspect. So we're we're never going to move a, a driver from a gold status down to a silver, or from a silver up to a gold. It's more for them to get a the background of how these brands are are being uh, viewed by the the general customers. And so the, it looks like the way that that list is put together is 45% is uh, performance, 30% innovation, 20% look, sound, and feel, and then 5% demand. How did you come to even being a part of that? Yeah, they approached me um, seven years ago, I believe it was the first year I did it. And, and, um, and in those seven years, I think, uh, there's been a little turnover. I think this past year, everyone returned. I would say the last three years, it's been kind of the same crew. And then there was a middle three years where it was a, a 
most of the same crew, but a few others involved. And then prior to that was a slightly different crew. So it doesn't change over all the time. It's actually, for me, a really cool day and a half to two days of, of roundtable discussions of where we are as an industry and what we're seeing, um, you know, from a brand's standpoint for the most part, but even overall. Um, so I, you know, I was excited to, to get the invite. Honestly, the first year I thought I was going to go out there and, and, and it was in uh, Arizona. I thought I was going to go out there and hit golf balls for two days. And I wasn't sure if uh, my back would want to hang, uh, hold up to that and the hands and everything. And then I get out there and literally you'll hit maybe, uh, for about an hour. Uh, one of the days we just hit some of the new stuff where we feel like, uh, seeing a lot of which we have already seen on the retail side. Um, none of it's out yet, but a lot of it we've seen. So, um, so it wasn't what I expected from that standpoint, um, but very uh, informative uh, as a retailer to kind of bounce some ideas off of what's going on and, and seeing what lines up with other retailers across the country. And, and I think it's five or six of us on the, on that board um, and seeing what lines up and then seeing some other things that, don't really make sense. You come back home, maybe you, you try with a, a certain brand that you didn't try with before. And I've had that and then realized it just doesn't work in my market where it does in California or wherever else uh, in the country. Okay. Okay. And so what, what sort of changes have you maybe seen to the clubs or the technology that you're talking about on that list? I mean, in the, in the seven years that you've been involved, I think we we've seen at least some of the adjustments that we have now in almost standard in every driver is the, that ability to adjust it, uh, which I don't know if was there in, in, in 2014 when you first got involved. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's evolved for sure. Um, there are some, you know, certainly the adjustability has been a big deal and there's been discussions as to, you know, over certain years, do you need adjustability? Do you need to have this much? They're asking us these questions, but do you think the consumer even cares about certain adjustability pieces? And and you've seen it with some different drivers and, and the big brands will have a sliding weight in one version. The next year, they don't have a sliding weight. Um, you know, so that question comes up. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, the one length, I remember that being a big discussion one year over the last uh, maybe three or four years ago. Is that something that's going to catch on? And, you know, certainly there's some being sold um, and there has been, but it's not like, you know, every other person's out there using one length. Um, so there, there are definitely nuances in the equipment um, from year to year. Uh, I think there's you know, one of the other, the, the scientists that, that come in before us um, and they kind of talk about the technologies that they're actually going to use. Um, they, it's interesting to hear their feedback because they'll be the ones that will say, I remember jailbreak, for instance, um, in the Epic driver, they were blown away by that technology. Um, regardless of, you know, pro XYZ that gets paid to play that equipment being blown away by it. These guys and girls were, were more, uh, you know, all about the numbers and, and they were pretty impressed with that technology. And, you know, each year there'll be something and I'll usually ask that question, what, what were the scientists seeing that was impressive? So it's always cool to kind of hear that from, from behind the scenes. 
on the demand side, I would say I'm just kind of scrolling in my head through the past seven years, and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure I've played a tailor-made driver in some version for the last seven years. What have you seen in terms of brands on that demand side? Well, I mean, you know, the tailor-made Callaway uh, Titleist Ping um you know, as kind of the lead for, if you will, in brands, I think Cleveland slash Strixon um, is, you know, close to that. And you've got, you know, some other brands that are, you know, Cobra um, that are good brands. Um, so you'll see them rotate a little bit uh, from year to year, but usually, you know, for, for instance, drivers, you know, TaylorMade and Callaway are usually going to be um, at or near the top. And, and a big part of that is that as much money as they put into R&D, um, they really do keep creating, uh, they're, they're continuing to have product come out that's uh, improvements over the last one. But there were years where, you know, one of those, one of those brands uh, may have had kind of a, they slipped up over that year with the consumer. And if it's, uh, if it's something that, you know, really starts to take hold, we'll say, hey, you know, company XYZ is sliding a little bit. And, you know, two years later, well, now they've kind of made a comeback. So um, we have seen it rotate a little bit. I think the, the, the hot list as a concept, um, I think is a very good one. I think Discovery Channel that now owns Golf Digest, I, I'm hoping will uh, expand on the exposure of the hot list, um, how it really kind of works behind the scenes without getting into too much of it, but, but to really see that, that Mike and Mike do an unbelievable job of collecting all this equipment for, for these players to hit, um, collecting the data that we're giving them in terms of what we think is going to be the highest in demand, um, or lowest in demand, um, pulling these scientists together, interviewing them, being able to talk their language as far as some of the, the very, very in-depth scientific um, data that goes into that. Um, so I'm hopeful that it, it becomes a little bit of, of that type of story where you can see what they put into it and it doesn't become, uh, oh, well, Callaway just puts a bunch of money into Golf Digest. So of course they got all gold stars. They truly are putting together um, you know, where all these pieces come together to, to create what that, that list will be. Now, it just so happens, like I said, some of these manufacturers are putting a lot of money and effort into creating products that will keep them up top and therefore they end up up top. How much does, in your mind or in your experience, what we see um, individuals and professionals represent on the tour how much does that drive demand that you might experience in the retail environment? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that's another topic of discussion that we will uh, we will have. I mean, there's there's been people that move, uh, pros that move the needle for certain brands, and it's not a lot of them. And, and in my experience over the the years, you know, uh, I remember Freddie Couples really driving Lynx irons and, and Lynx is a brand and Phil Mickelson being, you know, a lefty, um, 
you know, would create and, and being kind of flamboyant like he is and, and, uh, out there, uh, for the, for the, you know, fans, um, you know, he had, he was with Yonix for a while and, and with Titleist for a while. And now, now Callaway, he's a big brand ambassador. Um, those guys do move the needle some as some of the also rands, uh, and I say that in a bad way. It's, it's, you know, your everyday PGA tour, um, player, LPGA tour player. I don't know that they necessarily drive it if they play Titleist versus Callaway, but, you see some things like, you know, short game, you know, putters, wedges, uh, and, and certainly drivers that, um, you know, really does, for lack of better words, drives that business and, and uh, is important, I believe, for those brands to, to put some focus on. What would you, as you looked at an experience this year's hot list, what or some of the surprises or what are some of the things that people can look forward to when they, when they look through that? Um, yeah. So, so again, so this year was a little different. We did everything via zoom. Um, and it was, a you know, rather than, uh, be together for two days, which, which will bring up conversation. So you're, you're sitting in a round table room. Um, so there's conversations there. You might be playing an afternoon round of golf. So there's some other conversations there. You got dinner at night, um, maybe watching uh, a World Series is usually going on. Um, so you're watching the game after dinner and and you, you come up with all of these different conversations. So this year was was a two hour, you know, Zoom call. And it was just kind of a quick in and out, very business like, which is just where we have to be at this point. But the um, the hot list as a as a complete package, we, we basically read at the same time that anybody else does this year, they got us a a little digital um, preview of what was going on. So, so I'm usually, I'm just as curious to see what, what, and and the players come in after we leave. So we have no inkling as to, and they, they're, they're the ones that really drive everything. So we don't really know what's going to be popular on the hot list. Um, I would say this year, if I recall, um, the uh, Srixon products did very, very well. Um, n- not that I'm surprised by that, um, but sometimes that doesn't get recognized. Um, so I was uh, pleasantly surprised at how well they did. And and to that point, we've sold their their irons very, very well out of the gate. Um, very like increased last year's sales already on that iron. Now, last year they were in year two of a cycle. So sometimes that'll happen because of that, but really off to a nice start. Um, in the putter category, uh, there was, uh, you know, Betnardi did very, very well. We do well with Betnardi. Um, that was nice to see. Um, you know, so there's a few things like that. I don't think, you know, we used to, 10 years ago, I remember people would walk in with that, that hot list and say, I want the top of every single one of these um, consumers a little more savvy now and, and understanding now to say, okay, that, that doesn't make complete sense. It doesn't, doesn't sound terrible, except maybe it's not completely logical, um, but they're using it as a resource. And so sometimes it's nice to see um, when I know a brand like Betnardi is doing very good things in the putter world for it to get recognized on the hot list. Um, and then that kind of, you know, coordinates the sales and, 
you know, there's some smaller companies that will, there's some, some brands uh, that I've carried in the store because they were in the hot list three years prior. Nobody had heard of them, has heard of them. But as I saw them grow over the last couple of years, I'm like, that was a really nice product and, and bring that in. Um, you know, mainly putters because that's the, the category that, that you can entry, you get your entry in there without, uh, becoming too large of a company, iron sets and, and drivers is much more uh, to those those product lines. Sure. What about? Well, I I want to ask this so we can try to fit it in, and uh, I have two more questions. What have you seen at all in the which is completely uh, out in another space from from your model, but the direct to consumer models is what. What, what's your interpretation and, and you know, how, of, of the direct-to-consumer model, uh, business model, and, and, and in the golf space especially? So, um, and I, I suppose you mean a direct-to-consumer, direct consumer, not tailor-made selling directly to consumer. You're talking about a brand that's built all around direct-to-consumer. Correct, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think that can be interesting. Um, it's, it's to me, and I'm, you know, somewhat biased on this to me to validate, uh, very good golf equipment. I would think it would be in a, in an operation like, like ours at Golfdom. Um, so to me, you're, you're missing out on that piece, right? So, so if you've got a product that is direct to consumer, my salespeople aren't going to be able to compare it against anything else. It may be better, may not, they're not going to be able to compare that. Um, but again, that's part of the, the business model they've come up with. I've seen more than one of those direct consumer, direct to consumer brands ultimately come to us and say, Hey, we're ready to partner now. And I would say most of the time, um, it, that doesn't necessarily work out. It's either run its course. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just coming to us because that's their last chance. Uh, when I say us, I mean the, the retail um, side. Um, and, and generally, that's more the case. By the time they've gotten to that that point, then then it's just not working. Um, but I think there has been some some you know decent uh, plays out there in in that realm, at least from what people have said. Um, you know, it's not something that I delve into too much because that's uh, not something that we, we deal with and, and our partners that we have, we take, you know, very, as I mentioned before, the, the relationships are paramount and therefore um, you want to support them in, in every way you can. Um, but, you know, it's, it's with the growth of the game that we're seeing now, um, which is just awesome. Uh, and, and it, the growth is two things in my mind. It's, it's, it's that new golfer getting into the game. It's also that, that golfer being reintroduced to the game. And that's either through, you know, top golf and they kind of, you know, reinvigorated their, their love of the game or, or reminded them that they, they did enjoy this, this challenging game. Um, or, you know, we, we've got, people that just said, you know what, I haven't played in 15 years and, and this pandemic's going on and I'm, I'm bored at home and, and I'm going to go play golf. So here's my clubs. Can we regrip them and, and let me go play again? Um, and then they're usually in after a couple of rounds going, I can't hit these clubs anymore. And said, okay, well, let's get you into something uh, a little more 
forgiving with today's technology. So, you know, that, that part of, of this growth is going to create um, more avenues and, and opportunities um, and therefore direct con- to consumer brands will, will be able to participate that much more. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing uh, just to have that many more opportunities. And we're also seeing it with some different uh, clothing styles and, and, you know, some of the old school rules, if you will, that are being kind of uh, reevaluated and looked at, I mean, down to even using yardage devices and, and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, it's creeping up there in terms of where you can use these. Um, and, you know, I think all that's, that's good music on the, on the golf course that would have been unheard of when, when, you know, I mean, 15 years ago, now it's, it's fairly common. So um, I think all of those things are good, certainly in the right place. It's not, not everything's for everyone. And, you know, each one, each one of those things should be looked at, but I think it's cool that we're, we're able to, to see it from a, a, fresh set of eyes, a new, new angle on the game. And if we can participate in some of that uh, fresher thinking, it, it's, I think, a great thing. So if I walked into Golfdom this afternoon, I could pick up a Bluetooth speaker and a golf-footed sweatshirt? Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and you wouldn't catch me wearing one. You, you'd catch me using the Bluetooth speaker. And, and, I don't, and, and I'm, I'm not um, totally against the hoodie deal yet, but um, it's not one that I've uh, put into my wardrobe quite yet either. <laughs> All right. I didn't want to put you on the spot there, but um, l- last question for you. You grew up in Virginia. You've played a lot of golf in Virginia. What is your favorite course in Virginia? My favorite course, um, I mean, I, I'm a member at Westwood Country Club. I, I worked there uh, in, in high school, enjoyed that, and joined uh, about 12 years ago. Um, so I, I love, I love Westwood and, you know, we, we redid the course, um, five, six, seven years ago and, and it's turned into a really, really nice golf course. So certainly, uh, I'm, I'm biased again on that. Um, on, as far as favorite, favorite golf courses, it would have to be Pebble beach, uh, got engaged at Pebble beach, um, and have been lucky enough to have played it um, a good number of times. And, and it just, uh, it, it, I'm in a different world when I'm, I'm on that golf course. And that's, uh, that is a fun world to be in. Yeah. I can see on the wall behind you, you've got a view from the 18th tee box and yep. a view from behind the 18th green. Yep. Yep. I got engaged, uh, at the, the trees in the middle of the fairway. Um, so that, that hole and, and I had some of my dad's ashes out there, uh, it's it's a it's a special hole to me and and you know, worldwide it's 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 maybe one of the most famous but but I've got a lot of uh, very uh, sentimental ties to that that golf hole. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, buddy. That's always fun to know experiences our friends have on other golf courses. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to join us on Golf in the Commonwealth, and we look forward to seeing you around Golfdom soon. Great. Well, hey, I appreciate you having me and uh, good luck with the podcast. Love, uh, love what you're doing. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Golf in the Commonwealth and big thanks to Buddy Christensen. 
I hope you'll take a second and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, and please rate us and leave a review. You'll need an active handicap index to play in VSGA events, so remember to visit your VSGA member club to renew your VSGA membership for 2021, or visit VSGA.org and renew online. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the fairway soon.